Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello everyone and welcome back to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. We're back on a very somber day. Uh, we've actually had a day or so to try and digest whatever happened at Leeds. It's not that easy and it's going to take time. And I know there's a lot that's been said and written about this. Uh, I'm just straight going to take this to Ayaz. Ayaz, what was that? I have I don't think I've seen India surrender so badly ever. And especially after the high of Lords. What Really, what happened here? So, Mr. Fantastic, I think it, it defies logic. It defies explanation. Uh, I wish that I had something to say uh, more, I mean, you know, more logical than what I'm going to say. But in my opinion, this is the worst defeat that India has had in the last five, seven years, certainly. And certainly in uh, under Virat Kohli's captaincy. And I say this not in a, in a demeaning way. I say it as a matter of fact, because yes, we've had a 36 all out, you know, where Virat was captain and we got bowled out in Adelaide for 36. But I thought that was a one-off. You know, these things can happen. These are, uh, in sport, is replete with stories where suddenly a team collapses inexplicably. It's happened with many teams. It's not just India. So, for instance, India collapsed for 42 all-out against England uh, at Lords in 1974. And then it took about, what, 48 years before something like that repeated itself. So, these things can happen. But if it... If these kind of collapses happen thrice within 12 months and twice in the same match, then there is a, you know, there's cause for concern. At Leeds, India collapsed for 78 in the first innings. And while in the second innings, they made 200 more runs than in the first innings. The fact is that eight wickets on the fourth morning were lost for 63 runs within two hours. So, I mean, these are suggesting that there is something that, you know, needs to be addressed. If it's not a malaise, if it's not as serious as a malaise, there's something, you know, quite wrong. Because you can't have a team which is otherwise so good. The team has done so wonderfully. I mean, they beat Australia and Australia despite being bowled out for 36. Uh, in the second test at Lords, the Indian team came back from a near impossible situation to win the match. And yet, in the next match, they lose, you know, by an innings. Now, I know sport is, you know, unpredictable and that's the glory of sports. I know cricket is a game of complete uncertainties. It can happen. And yet, for a great team to be called or defined as great, you need consistency. You can't be a mercurial, unpredictable team and say, hey, you know what, we are a great team. So I think that's something that really needs to be addressed in the dressing room. I don't know what the answer to that is. I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, introspection individually and collectively because ultimately each player's reputation is also getting affected and obviously the teams. And then, you know, you have to maybe you need to rework your tactics. Maybe the tactics were wrong. Maybe the selection of players was not so great. Maybe you need to look at personnel. Some Maybe big names or thought of big names may not be fitting in to deliver what you need. And at the end of the day, you have to, you know, I, I, I admire, I mean, collective responsibility taken by the captain. He has made, made a mistake. But at the same time, 
you need to find a way out absolutely i mean you bring up the point of uh, big names not performing and uh, the team having to take hard calls i think despite pujara's 91 in this test and i'm just going to go ahead and name him i think it's time to give him a bit of a rest and try out someone else you know he's he's averaging in the low uh, 30s or the high 20s for the better part of the past year or the better part of the past 10 12 test matches i don't think he's had a 100 in a very long time Rahane is clearly struggling. I don't think Rahane knows what his role in the team is. You know, is he is he a rear guard action uh, wall or is he supposed to attack uh, or counter attack? I don't think anybody knows what the number four, five, six are supposed to do. And I don't think Pant is ready yet to be at a six uh, position. So despite Virat Kohli's con- insistence that uh, adding an extra batsman is not the solution, I think this middle order needs a bit of cover and additional depth because... As Michael Vaughan has very eloquently put it, we can't have rabbits batting from 8 to 11. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem. Rabbits from 8 to 11. And we got misled into believing that the rabbits would turn out to be like, you know, share, bubble share in the next match also. I mean, they performed... Well, one swallow makes a summer knot. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, they performed heroically in the Lord's Test. But that doesn't mean you, you can expect that from them every time. And frankly, why should you? Because if your batting order reads Rohit Sharma, KL Rahul, Cheteshwar Pujara, Virat Kohli, Ajinkya Rahane, uh, Rishabh Pant and uh, Ravindra Jadeja, surely you want 300 runs, 350 runs from them almost every time they step out to bat. You can't expect the tail-enders, the last four, to give you 89, 90, 100 runs every time. Because that's really a, a clear sign that your top order is not clicking in, which is exactly what happened at Leeds. And I, you know, frankly, uh, Mr. Fantastic, I don't know what happened in the eight-day period between the Lord's Test and the Leeds Test. Did the team get too complacent? Did they believe that they had, ha-ha, you know, we've completely demoralized the England team, so now we can win easily, as all experts said it. Mind you, all experts believed after the Lord's Test that now this is a one-way street for India. I mean, they can keep on winning and there's going to be no, you know, England can't match up. But hey, you know, things have completely turned around. And what's happened is we got bowled out for 78. In the next innings, as I was saying, we made 278, but we, you know, without any conviction. I think we made the same mistake Australia made uh, earlier this year after taking the lead. They undermined this team, which then fought back bravely, valiantly to win the series. And I think the initiative and the momentum very clearly now is with England and India once again has catching up to do and looking at how the last two tours of England have gone, uh, they really need to make some very quick decisions, especially given that the next test is just three days away. Yes, I think they have to look at the team selection. For instance, the best spinner in the world, arguably the most valuable player in the world over the last 12-13 months has been R. Ashwin. He's not found a place for the first three test matches. I think he should play at the Oval because that's a pitch which traditionally supports spinners. But more than that, if you're looking for wickets from a spinner and Ravindra Jadeja, unfortunately, hasn't delivered the wickets. He's not done badly, but he's not delivered the wickets. So, you know, you have to look at Ashwin and you have to ask yourself, why have we kept him out? You have to look at even the the batting, as we mentioned, in the, in the middle order. Do we need to change one player, maybe two players? We don't know. I mean, that's something that the team management has to decide. But what the team management has to be seized off is that there is a problem. You know, you can't gloss over the problem. The problem is that, yes, you can claim and pat, you know, and say, you know, we could have won the first test if the rain had not intervened. That's gone. 
that's part and parcel of what happened in test match cricket. You could claim that we won a heroic test match, which you did at Lords. But that's also gone. The fact is, the last match that you played, you got trounced by an innings and 76 runs. Much against what everybody thought. And now what has happened, as you rightly mentioned, the England team has got openers who are looking as good, if not better, than our openers. They've got a middle order which is scoring runs. The top four batsmen in the England innings made half centuries. And Joe Root is batting like, you know, he's in in the form of his life. He's just going out there and, you know, making hundreds. I think he's got a point to prove. He had a lot of critics in his own country about his captaincy, about his batting. Of course, before uh, this season or the last season began because he had been you know, struggling a bit uh, for the big scores. But they've all come in a rush. He's been making centuries in Sri Lanka and in India. And of course, you know, in, the, in this series, he's made 300s in three test matches. Not just that. I think England's fast bowlers have shown that they are better than our fast bowling attack, at least at the Headingley test. They've got more swing, they've been more controlled, and more wicket-taking, they've been putting the batsmen under great pressure. And I must say this, Mr. Fantastic, that James Anderson may not have 20, 20 wickets to show in the three test matches, but his impact has been monumental. I think he's just got the Indian top order, that number one to number six, completely at sea against him. They are transfixed by what he's doing with his late swing, the in-swing, the out-swing. And because he's put so much pressure, and he's also got wickets, because he's put so much pressure, in trying to play him out, the batsmen are losing wickets to the other bowlers. So, it's it's been a, you know, right now what we have, the situation is that the English batting is looking better than India's, the English bowling is looking better than India's, and the momentum is with them. They won the last test match, and handsomely. So, the, the Indian team is really on the back foot in the old test starting in a few days from now. Yep, what a transformation just eight days can bring about. Uh, I think for the next test match, it's very important that we take a call. A, definitely bring in Ashwin. I mean, forget what the pitch is like. If you're going to play a spinner, I think it really should be Ashwin. Just his experience and the fact that he's, uh, I would say, the premier spinner in the country means he should get priority over any other uh, player who's uh, vying for that position. Uh, I think it's also time that Rahane was rested. Well, that's uh, a very polite way of saying put to pasture. But uh, it's time for someone like a Surya Kumar Yadav to get a shot. He's shown he's capable. He's fought his way over a decade or more of cricket in the domestic uh, leagues. And I think he deserves his time uh, or a chance to at least prove his abilities. Yeah, I'll agree with a lot of what you say, but I'll also add something to it, which is, you know, whether it's Rahane or XYZ is not the issue. Remember, in the top order between Rahane, Pujara and Kohli, actually only, you know, Kohli is making as many runs or as few runs as Rahane. You know, in the last match, Rahane had half century. In this match, Kohli had half century. Kohli has not looked completely out of sorts. He's been getting out in the same fashion. And that's been the problem. For Pujara, for Rahane and for Kohli, they've been getting out in similar fashion. Also, Pant. They are being suckered into those indiscriminate, indiscreet shots outside the off-stump and they are perishing. Now, I think what needs to be done is more than anything else, the tactics have to be revised. Whether it means standing out, standing two feet outside the, the batting crease or three feet or four feet. Whether it means that the approach against Anderson should change, should we... Should the batsman at least start making runs against him? Because you can't have a Kohli batting like, say, a 
you know, sheet anchor like a Pujara and also trying to take control of the match. That is not going to happen. Both things can't happen at the same time. So how do you play those, you know, fast bowlers in these conditions which help swing bowlers? Also, if Root is going to smash 100 every time, are we, you know, feeding to his strengths? Should we look for more weaknesses? That means more tactics involved in the bowling approach. And therefore, also what you mentioned, that Ashwin coming into the attack. So I think there's a whole gamut of things that need to be thought through and they all need to be done within the next day or two. Well, that's going to be the biggest challenge this team faces now. How do you recuperate? How do you regroup? And how do you come back fighting, looking like the team you were at Lords? Uh, and take this one blow on the chin, move on and kind of come true on what is expected of you, which is go ahead and win the series. Well, for all of you playing the fantasy side of sport, it's been a very tough week. We all, I think, went in with an India-loaded side and came back with our tail between our legs. It's not been pretty. At my end, I barely came back out with the shot on my back. Uh, for the next match, I'd still strongly advocate leading with Joe Root. Make him captain, make him captain doubly if you can, because he looks like he's got the blessings of Tendulkar, Ponting, Steve Waugh and the great Don himself. Because even if he just looks at a ball, he's probably going to go to the boundary. So just make sure he's in your team. <laughs> Uh, keep James Anderson there. You cannot write him off. He was superbly resolute in his approach, extremely focused. He just looked like a man on a mission in this entire test match. And I think we can expect that intensity from him and Ollie Robinson as well. For the Indians, I think Rohit has been pretty good. He had a tough test match, as did all Indian batsmen. Uh, but I think we should restore faith in him. Um, Virat Kohli seems to be hitting some sort of form. He's always a safe bet. He'll give you a few runs and therefore a few points. Beyond that, I would still lead with Jaspreet Bumrah and Mohamed Shami as the consistent performers and then wait for the finals playing 11s to be announced and pick someone who's probably going to come in fresh and mentally unscarred with the events of Leeds. That should be your 11 that you pick for the fantasy. Moving on, Nayaz, from all of the trauma that the cricket has caused us over the last few days, there's some good news coming from Tokyo in the Paralympics. The Indian athletes there are doing very well and we've got a few medals to show for it as well already. Yeah, I think three medals as we speak. And that's great going by, by the Indian Paralympic athletes. And, you know, this is just, it's just so wonderful because adding to the performances in the Olympics that we saw, uh, where we had seven medals, including a gold. And that really made the difference, the gold by Neeraj Chopra. Uh, otherwise, it would have been a very modest performance. But you get a gold in track and field, it just completely opens up a whole new horizon for India. And I think that also what is happening is that people in India, Paralympic athletes themselves, as well as those who support these athletes, are beginning to realize how important it is. And I think it's important, not just from the point of view, point of winning medals, it's also important from the point of, you know, inclusivity in our social fabric, uh, in the way we lead our lives, in the way we, you know, look at people, human beings outside of ourselves. I think that's really the paramount message that is coming across for me. Absolutely. And keeping in the spirit of the Olympics, uh, there's been a bit of an unnecessary uproar about Neera Chopra and what he said about uh, the Pakistani athlete in Javelin Thrower. Uh, what is wrong with people? I mean, why would you even make an issue out of this? These are athletes talking about their competitors with respect and, uh, 
you know, it was great camaraderie that was uh, being shown on the field. And why has this even become an issue? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the unfortunate uh, aspects of, let me put it this way, of, uh, of of life as it is today, and especially on social media where, you know, there are trolls and there are armies of misanthropes and, you know, disgruntled people and mischief mongers and, you know, hate peddlers who are looking for every opportunity to create differences between people, between countries. And I think that what Neera Chopra has done has been very brave. You know, he's been very honest. He's been honest to himself. Uh, and remember, he's a gold medal winner. So he's not some pipsqueak who's going and talking to uh, the public at large. And at least those guys who've taken offense at what he had to say about uh, Nadeem Ashraf. So I, I think that, look, athletes compete for honours. They are bitter when they are competing on the field of play, whether they are as a javelin thrower, as a cricketer, as a footballer, as a hockey player. And irrespective of who it is, whether it's your uh, you know, neighbouring country's team, which is there, or athlete, or rival, or someone else. I think that's how it should be. And after that, after the competition is over, they are actually you know, part of the same fraternity. They are athletes. They are sportspersons. They, they mingle together. They spend time together. They share thoughts and expertise together. Some may not. I mean, there are obviously people who may not. You know, I mean, he may, they may take the grudge a little beyond just that. But by and large, what we have seen, and it's not in the last 5, 7, 10 years. This has happened historically from the first Olympics till now, if you look at it. There have been great stories of how athletes from completely different countries bitter rivals who have helped each other or supported each other once the competition was over or even during the competition. And I think that's really the essence of sports. And I think Neera Chopra and then after that, Bajrang Punya, Sakshi Malik, uh, you know, Sharad Kamal, some of the others who have spoken up have done actually human service. And I'm not saying it's only about Indian fans and Indian trolls who are like this. There were lots of trolls in Pakistan who took umbrage at the fact that Nadeem said that his hero, his role model, his idol was Neera Chopra. I mean, Neera is 23, the other guy is 24. They are young men. They are growing up together. You know, they've been competing at the Commonwealth Asian Games. They've been one and two in many of the competitions. At the Olympics, Neera won a gold. You know, this consideration, the, the fact that the whole problem or the controversy began because Neeraj mentioned that Nadeem had taken his javelin and was perhaps rehearsing for his next throw, not realizing that Neeraj's throw was next. And Neeraj asked for his personal javelin to be given, became a point of dispute as a conspiracy theory. Well, actually, at any event of this sort, the javelins are kept in one, you know, one bunch at one earmarked place and people pick up and warm up and prepare themselves for the next throw, not knowing perhaps whose javelin they picked up. That's part for the course. And to make a mountain out of a molehill was, in my opinion, completely shameful. And I think great credit. I'm, I'm full of admiration for, for uh, young Neera Chopra for the way he's spoken out and he's tried to scuttle this nonsensical theorizing which, which happens so easily uh, on social media. I think that this is a lesson that has been served out to all these people who are looking for any excuse to create a problem. Absolutely. There's just no dearth of such idiots who are a misinformed and have a very, very narrow worldview. Well, speaking of worldviews, there's some really big news 
And as we were talking just before we started recording for the show about how Manchester United pipped Manchester City to land Cristiano Ronaldo uh, for themselves. It's a homecoming of sorts for him. And by all accounts, if he were actually to end up at City, it would have been a travesty on, well, that's more for the United fans to worry about, not me. But every United fan I've spoken to since is a bit relieved and kind of excited about the future. What do you think about Ronaldo returning to the Premier League? I am intrigued, Mr. Fantastic, as to, you know, I mean, he looked well on his way to City. And then suddenly there's a hairpin bend which comes in. And he goes back to United, where he, you know, was was such a stellar player some years back. So, look, this is the biggest development in the world of football, certainly. It's without doubt. We've had Messi last week. We've talked about his his move from from Barcelona. And now we've got... Cristiano Ronaldo leaving Juventus and going to Manchester United. I think there's, uh, you know, this pandemic has done some extraordinary things in our lives. And uh, this is one of those. This is going to be fantastic to see what it what it leads to. Thanks for that, Ayaz. And what do you think, Somil? Excited about having Cristiano Ronaldo back at the Reds? Excited is a bit of an understatement, Mr. Fantastic. It is the biggest homecoming I can remember in all of sport. I was trying to think of analogies. What is it like in a cricketing sense? What is it like in a basketball sense? What is it like in a Formula One sense? There genuinely has never been anything quite like this, Mr. Fantastic. The stats show it. It's the most liked photo by any sporting team ever in history. Not only on Instagram, but on Twitter as well. But this is just outstanding, Mr. Fantastic. For the last four, five odd days since it's been announced, I haven't stopped smiling. Again, I'm a United fan, I know, but... Just take it for what it is. For what it is, it genuinely is something that could transform the Premier League into an even bigger beast, as if it needed that. I don't even know what to say. It's a sporting miracle. But here's the million-dollar question, or, well, maybe the $18 million question. Uh, Do you think he'll help them win any title? No. (laughs) Uh, uh, The honest question is... The honest answer to this, I'm sorry, is is no. Reason being, we just saw what happened yesterday. Uh, the day before we recorded this, Manchester United had a match with Wolves. And the clear problem was not the attack. The attack was fine. Mason Greenwood, of course, a tremendous finish that got us the goal. But when you've got a midfield that is so, uh, what can I say? It's, it's like scrambled eggs. There's no stability to it. It's absolutely... Uh, it's absolutely perilous to watch as a Man United fan. When you say watch a match against Chelsea, when you watch, say, Manchester City playing, you don't see that same confidence in the midfield. And I don't think that that'll really help United. But in a way, Mr. Fantastic, it can. Reason being, Ronaldo is a proven winner. And winners elevate people around them. Ronaldo as a proven winner is in the team. Rafa Varane as a proven winner is in the team. These are the sort of characters you need in the team to boost you up and to lift you from a period of uh, low confidence into something like winning a league. So if there's one thing that makes me excited, it is this. But objectively speaking, ah, I think it's still going City or Chelsea's way. What? You're leaving Liverpool out at your own peril. But nonetheless, let's go back to what happened over the weekend. You just mentioned um, a really close call for United. I mean, that was a game you'd kind of expect them to win, not to play down the threat that the Wolves are. Uh, But honestly, I mean, you'd expect better. I mean, the first half looked like it was all Wolves until United probably woke up a little bit. And that goal was a bit of a lucky goal. I think there's a bit of controversy surrounding whether... United should have hit the ball out of play, but they went on and Greenwood went on to score. So what do you think about that? 
Uh, I totally agree with you on this one, Mr. Fantastic. It was somewhat of a lucky win. And lucky not because Man United just scraped out that goal. Again, I'll get to that in one second. Lucky because Wolverhampton Wanderers forgot how to finish. They had so many chances in the first half. This could have been their match, right? Beating Man United at home, that's such a brilliant way to begin the season. But they just forgot what the goal looks like. And they eventually didn't end up capitalising on, I think, the thousands of chances we gave them. Uh... I think it's just a case of Rafa Varane and Harry Maguire gelling in. So we give it some time and maybe it'll come better. But as for the goal, Mr. Fantastic, it's, uh, it brings me to a discussion of spirit of the game, like we often end up uh, using in the world of cricket, right? What is the spirit of the game? Should you carry on if somebody is injured or should you put a ball out of the play? Wolverhampton Wanderers did the more gentleman-esque thing. They put the ball out of the play when Bruno Fernandes was, uh, quote-unquote, injured. He wasn't. But... Man United decided to be a little more ruthless and they played on. Referee found no contact and he gave the goal. As a fan, I don't mind, but uh, honestly, as, as a general observer, Mr. Fantastic, it was just not a very nice thing to do. But sometimes the winners are greedy. They don't care about being nice, right? Well, spirit of the game and all that clearly doesn't apply to United, it seems. <laughs> but over the weekend, we did have no surprises, to be very honest. I was a little disappointed to see West Ham not win, given the form they've been in for most of last season and the way they've even started off this season. I know they're not considered as genuine title contenders, but, you know, under David Moyes and whatever he's been able to achieve in the last few weeks, uh, last few uh, match days, I think this team is a genuinely good one. They're kind of reminding me of uh, Leicester back in 15-16 when they saved themselves from uh, relegation and then went on to win under Claudio Ranieri. But uh, do you think West Ham is a team that has to be taken seriously? Yes, but no. What they need right now is a mercurial forward like Jesse Lingard was last year. You see substance in this West Ham team. They've grown up and they've built up quite well over the course of the last couple of years. But they took on Crystal Palace. And normally Crystal Palace isn't a team you'd expect to pull off such great results. But this year, their transfer strategy has been superb. They've invested into young starlets all the time. And they've made sure that this team feels fresh, feels young and has that special feeling to it. And pulling out this draw against West Ham was was tremendous. But yes, I think West Ham, they, they could be in there, perhaps with a shout of finishing above <clears throat> Arsenal. <laughs> what a year. I think everyone's going to finish above Arsenal, aren't they? I mean, if you and I put together a team today, we might finish above them. <laughs> so, at least we would know how to defend. That's one thing. Yeah, I mean, at least we wouldn't be 0 for 3 after the first 3 given that they're considered one of the top 6 and I think Mikel Arteta's time is up uh, I don't know how long he can hang in there given the disappointing results yes they've not uh, had the best team available a lot of injuries but their whole transfer strategy has been well invisible and they unfortunately ran into a Manchester City that was rampant especially given how they started off their own season with the loss to the Spurs uh, City seemed like, okay, they've found their mojo again. All it took was one loss. And Arsenal, uh, I remember a point in the game where Arsenal had about 10% possession in the second half. I mean, that's insane. They were just like, uh, they, were, they, they seemed scared of the ball. You know, what do I do if I get this round object? Uh, they didn't end up doing a lot better though. At the end, the stats are just alarming. Allow me to explain why. Possession, Manchester City 81%, Arsenal 19%. Shots on target, Manchester City 10, Arsenal 0. 
But the conversion rate isn't that bad because Manchester City had 25 shots. Arsenal had a grand total of one. One shot, Mr. Fantastic. One. And it seemed inevitable. Whenever the ball would come to the box of Arsenal, it would go for a goal. That first goal, right? Things like that you can't blame on the manager when a defender like Callum Chambers has a simple clearance to make. You can't say that's Arteta's fault. But again, there's something fundamentally wrong going on here. I, I wouldn't like to quote Arsenal fan TV right here. I think they have they've justified that very well. But it's a bigger problem than the manager. But the manager is also a critical problem. I agree. Well, for the rest of the uh, weekend, there were no surprises. Like we said, it was all going up to form. The Spurs... Well, they've got their third win, but it's another very close win. Just another 1-0. I mean, yeah, you could have 38-1-0 wins and win the title. It doesn't matter. Your, your goal difference finally won't come into the picture. But at some point, this team is going to crack and they're going to suffer because they're just not converting enough. Maybe with Harry Kane deciding to stay back and being available now, things might change because he and Son do forge a strong partnership up front. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Harry Kane didn't feel like Harry Kane in this last match. You, you get a feeling that he's still getting over this failed transfer for Manchester City. But we've seen that happen previously with big goal scorers as well. Wayne Rooney, remember when he could have become Judas and moved to Manchester City back in 2010? Took a couple of weeks and then Rooney became Rooney. And we know ex- exactly what happened next, right? So give it some time. I think when Kane comes back in, they will be a lot better. Again, the record is impeccable, but I- I'm totally in agreement with you. They just seem to be missing that something extra. But even though it's not Harry Kane, I mean, even though Harry Kane is still not in perfect form, it's a bit of an alarming one, isn't it? You're so reliant on one player for all your goals. Well, if you had any non-Manchester United references, I would have gone on to speak about those. But I think eventually Harry Kane will find form and uh, the Spurs can dream for now. And Arsenal should also dream uh, of not getting relegated. Who knows what happens this season. <laughs> uh, before we move on from the football, last match to talk about is Chelsea and Liverpool. And uh, I have to give it to Chelsea. I'm not a fan of Chelsea. I am a fan of Liverpool. And I have to hand it to Chelsea for how they hung in there, away from home, defied Liverpool a win at home, despite playing with 10 men. Do you think that sending off was justified? No. I'll tell you why. Handballs aren't appreciated in the world of football. And Reese James clearly had a handball. But the referee just... You have the option this year in the Premier League to check the VAR. And you can see what's going on. The referee checked, but only for a couple of seconds. That seemed like the referee had already made the decision that, boss, this is going to be a red card. And that's... I don't think that's how it works. But still, I think it was an unintentional handball. Again, just my take at the end of the day. Say what you want, though. Say what you want. Chelsea, my word, did they hang in there. And this was everything you expect from a Liverpool versus Chelsea fight. Blockbuster. It was popcorn flying around all over the Anfield. You could just sense the tension. And this might be one of the first draws of the season. But who cares? That is some crazy, crazy, amazing football. See, I'm running out of superlatives now. That that is how good of a match that was. Just totally entertaining. Absolutely. This was a draw far more watchworthy than a lot of the other wins that were uh, played out over the weekend. Well, moving along, uh, we have to speak about the Formula One this week, don't we? I mean, should they start investing in boats? What's the plan? I mean, uh, I I was reading something interesting and I think it was Karun Chandok who tweeted saying there must be some rules about handing out a race. You have to have at least maybe 25% of the race uh, without the safety car for it to be counted. I mean, in cricket, we've got a minimum requirement, for instance, of 20 overs constituting a one-day international. Uh, 
do you think this was a final fair result given the conditions and everything uh no but the rules are the rules rules say you need to have at least two full laps and there's a little bit of controversy about did we actually have two full laps because if you consider the first lap as a formation lap we only did one lap and one lap is enough and so there are teams like alfa romeo like alpine saying boss this isn't fair we didn't do any racing laps and the reason why they only did two laps if you think they did two laps is because they had to meet the broadcaster's agreement and it is quite clear you need to have a classification for formula 1 to be paid their money now this is something we discussed on the inside line of one podcast is it actually fair to have half points for a race where we didn't have any racing and fernando alonso said it perfectly when he said boss i didn't even get my chance to prove what i'm worth in this one so why am i being given no points when i had no opportunity to show okay this is what i can do in the race it, it's a bit bit of a fast to be honest and it's a bit of a fast for the fans who paid a lot of money to come into the benjamin country side and to wait for three and a half hours for the race clock to expire to only get two laps you should have said that the race is done right the, the fia tried to mold a little rule in a bit to get some racing but it was just in a bit to get some classifications in it's a, it's a bit of a shame if there's one positive george russell of williams has got a podium in the most george russell format who would have imagined the last time we saw george russell close to getting a podium it was robbed away by some pit stop issues by mercedes and when life takes away from you it hands it back as well in some ways well so what does that leave where does that leave us with the championship who's up who's down i'm thoroughly confused uh hamilton leads not by much though it's really close at the top and if you've got ocd this is what my co-host on the inside line of one podcast kunal said don't check the championship standings it's full of half points here and there it really is not helpful but yes lewis hamilton is the leader of this championship it's only by some 8 points or something like that lando norris is now in third and to put this into context george russell has the same number of p2s as valtteri bottas in a mercedes clear i think he's going to get that seat So I'm not even going to hazard a guess as to who's finally going to walk away with the title this year. It's just all too damn confusing. Moving on to New York where the action is just about beginning in the US Open. We've already had a lot of pullouts. We've got no Rafa Nadal, there is no Roger Federer, there is no Serena Williams. So and we've been saying it for about 6 months that we need to have one of the young brigade win one of the majors well the olympics if you consider it a major was not won by djokovic and that's the newsworthy aspect uh, can he go on to win the calendar slam at least since the golden slam is clearly out of reach but is this finally the year when a daniel medvedev for instance who's been doing exceptionally well on the hard courts uh, stands up and says hey i'm seeded number 2 i must win my first grand slam It's the best chance ever for Medvedev, but again, at the same time, it isn't because Djokovic is now well rested, and the rest was the major problem in the European season. We saw Grand Slam after Grand Slam, then the Olympics, and you've got to give it right. Sometimes fatigue does come into play, and Djokovic, you could see in that match, was fatigued in the Olympics. But apart from Medvedev as well. Zverev, Sasha Zverev has won gold medal at the Olympics at hard court and yes, I know it's not a representative field completely. Many top players weren't there, but that's the same case for the US Open as well. There could be a chance that Zverev could be uh, taking home his first Grand Slam and remember, Zverev if I'm not mistaken has won an ATP to 1000 final as well before. So it's not like the pedigree isn't there with Sasha Zverev. There's a good chance maybe Zverev, maybe Medvedev, I'm sorry. Uh and Sitsipas has been in and around and and to be honest Mr Fantastic after 
after Roland Garros, right, many is, uh, many of our hopes were pinned on Stefano Tsitsipas. But Wimbledon was, let's be honest, terrible. And even all of his tournaments that he's played in the hard courts hasn't been very great, to be honest. So I, I wouldn't put my money on him big time. Momentum is just not on his side. So who's your pick? Give me one name. Uh, I'm going to go Zverev this time. I think he just beats Djokovic in this. But Djokovic is rested and, and you can't take it away from him. Ah, I, I'm genuinely confused, which is why I would love to watch. I, I think uh, Djokovic is going to crumble under the pressure of expectations again. Uh, the calendar slam is quite something and to do all four in a year, uh, amazing. Uh, I hope he does it because this will also mean it's number 21 for him. But at the same time, I think Daniel Medvedev's time is here if he can... Keep it together between the years. That's our show for the week. Let's pray that India finally finds its bearings, can compete better, catch the US Open and join us next week again as we discuss that. A lot of the football and get ready for Cristiano Ronaldo's second coming in the Premier League. Thanks again, Ayaz, for joining us and we'll catch you after the fourth test. Thank you, Mr. Fantastic. Always a pleasure being with you and Samil and hopefully, hopefully, Next week, when we are discussing cricket uh, on this show, we'll have better things to talk about Indian cricket and the Indian cricket team in England. 